take a deep breath and remember there's a power breathing you. This is your space of sanity in an evolving world where we learn about spiritual law and how to apply it to our lives in a way that is practical and life-changing. This is where we remember truth to make the world a better place one person at a time. I'm Claire Lotier, inspirational speaker, teacher of the technology of transformation, and a certified life mastery consultant and spiritual coach. Welcome to the Grace Space. As the first two years of my conscious commitment to the spiritual path progressed, I entered the water element of feeling. It was often murky, vague, and obscure in the waters of my being. I lost my compass. The sense of purpose I had started out with, the galvanizing energy and clarity of the first major awakening experience in the presence of my teacher gradually gave way to muddiness and confusion. And I found myself seemingly alone, treading water in the open ocean with no land in sight. I feared the coldness of the ocean depths, which my feet were stirring up in my efforts to stay afloat. I feared the predators who would be alerted to my presence and who would come for me. Sooner or later, I knew. There was an undercurrent of uneasiness and a vague sense of threat from within. I had no idea what was down there in the cold and dark. But ever the hider and pretender... I adopted the upside of the new role of spiritual aspirant and tried to avoid the downside of what that meant. After all, I was living my dream. I had followed my heart. I had made a commitment and walked away from my old life. I had to be happy. I had to be right. The ego slipped in through the back door and piggybacked on the awakening experience to form a new identity that was better than the unhappy actor that had been. I wanted this role to be the right one. I had let fall one mask, but underneath there was another, a more subtle, transparent one, but a mask nonetheless, of which I, of course, was completely unaware. I knew deep down that the original awakening experience was authentic. And the intention carrying me through this ocean of time was pure, but as I tried to recapture the truth of the original experience, I found it elusive, like trying to remember a dream. The mind wanted to pin it, define it, understand it, and recreate it, most of all. It lingered in the past, holding on to the memory of the experience as a time of clarity and faith. Then it projected a future where I would find that again. For a time, that was what kept me going. But once again, I was rarely in the present. The moment was a means to an end. I've got to get somewhere better in the future. The answer was out there somewhere. The discomfort of not knowing who I was anymore crept in at the lonelier moments. So I threw myself into action, just like I'd always done, doing the journey rather than being. 
In the months between my training weeks, I was either processing the last training week or preparing for the next one, so there was always a practice to do. My practice became the anchor that either stabilized me or triggered a plunge into judgment and self-recrimination. I found out that wherever you go, there you are. (laughs) That taking on the role of spiritual aspirant did not offer the hoped-for relief from suffering. That the ego mind could use anything to perpetuate ancient patterns of inner torment, including yoga. I found myself avoiding my practice, then feeling guilty for missing it, then recommitted to it, then I would grow disappointed and disillusioned when I wasn't transforming as fast as I thought I should. Still so identified with the personal self that had been, I couldn't see the contortions of the ego who had taken ownership of the journey and called it mine. It projected an ideal onto the journey and a new ego ideal onto the personal self. And I was continually falling short of the mark (laughs) in my journey. The same old patterns reappeared and the same old programs replayed in the subconscious. I thought of my journey as personal. And of course, we all have a story with facts and places and people and circumstances, a story to tell about how we got to this moment right here. But ultimately, the spiritual journey is the journey of consciousness itself, and it's always the same. But the story, as it was being lived, was personalized and made special by the ego. So when I call this series My Journey, (laughs) it's with, again, a little bit of a wink, None of this is mine. The one who believed itself to be on the spiritual path was yet another fiction of the mind. But that doesn't invalidate the journey. We journey with the level of awareness that we have, and we are carried and supported by invisible powers we know not of. Once the intention has been set, the journey unfolds on its own. In fact, you could say it's already happened and you're just remembering it. The one in you who seeks is consciousness itself. But until the ego falls away, it believes itself to be the seeker and takes ownership of the seeking. This implies a duality between the seeker and what is sought, separating them with time and space. Of course, (laughs) the ego is separation. That's what it does. The ego, as the seeker, can never be a finder. Why? Because that would mean the end of it. Ego has an unconscious defense mechanism against awakening. It is defending its very structure. It's the metaphor of the chief of police looking for the arsonist when the arsonist is the chief of police. It cannot allow you to discover your true source of power because that would invalidate it. It cannot allow the penetration of spiritual truth at depth. It stops at intellectual agreement and knowing about spirituality as a concept. It puts your enlightenment off in the future once you're good enough or you've figured it out. The mechanism, you know, that that mechanism that makes you jump in your sleep when you feel like you're falling, when you catch yourself like that, that's the survival mechanism. It's the same one that 
saves you from falling into a surrendered state in which you let go completely of everything you ever thought of as you. It takes time to become aware of this. It takes time to realize that you're seeking with something that can never find what you're looking for. It's like using the wrong instrument and being in the wrong paradigm. When we start out on the path, we're still very much identified with the ego. We believe we are this personal self. Who else is there? The only you you know is the one you've always thought yourself to be. Spiritual work, therefore, is a threat to this sense of self and the defenses come up. The ego shapeshifts and convolutes, distorts and twists and obfuscates and evades. It's a box within a box within another box. It's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. It's like living in an impossible construction by Escher, where the stairways lead nowhere and the doorways mean nothing and you never know which way is up or down. But somehow, it's okay. I continued to have powerful experiences and nonlinear understandings during the training weeks at my teacher's ashram, even if I couldn't make any sense of them, which was probably good. And as my inner landscape was coming apart, I was opening up to a different outer landscape. During my time in France, before and after the training weeks, which I always built into my travel, I felt a strong attraction to the land, particularly in the Pays Qatar between Montpellier and Carcassonne. Something about the landscape filled my senses and seemed to me the most beautiful and harmonious collection of colors and textures and smells in an ideal scale that just made sense <laughs> to my being. I felt drawn to sit on the ground and take my shoes off, which I'd never felt inclined to do in any other natural setting other than the beach. My heart responded to an inner radiance that I seemed to sense in the ordinary trees and flowers and shrubs and stones of the landscape with a swelling feeling of love. Although I was often overcome by an inexplicable melancholy as well. I explored the towns and the countryside wherever I went, trying to put my finger on whatever was playing the drone of nostalgic longing in me, but it was elusive. I wanted to recapture something or find peace with something or both, I don't know, but it was always beyond reach. At the same time, I was rebuilding and deepening my relationships with my French family, spending time with my cousins and my uncle and my aunt whenever I could. The old picture albums and boxes came out, even the old slide projector, and we traveled back into the past together and often stayed up late talking and filling in the blanks of many years of separate lives. It dawned on me that after my father's early death, which had rocked our whole family, it would have been easy for us to lose touch with one another across the ocean. Had it not been for the magnet of my teacher's presence, we might have just contented ourselves with coming together for weddings and funerals without ever really knowing each other. But I was determined to go deeper, to become a more constant presence in their lives, determined to know them and love them and to understand them and in so doing, understand more of myself. Somehow they were a part of my puzzle. I felt as though I had woken up in the middle of my life 
<laughs> and was suddenly aware of a new dimension within it that had always been there, but like an underground river. I could feel the river now, and I knew it was giving life to the land above. It seemed so obvious that I couldn't fathom how I'd missed it for so long, save a few notable moments of direct knowing as a child. I guess that's why we call it awakening. You really do feel like you have been sleepwalking through your life up until that moment. For most people, awakening proceeds in stages of increasing realization. Although for some people, it seems to happen all at once in a moment of karmic ripeness, like an apple falling from the tree. Each new stage of realization has its own feeling of reward and revelation and completeness before consciousness advances again. As the stages progress, there seems to be a necessary dissolution or a crumbling of obsolete forms, whether they're thought forms, belief systems, lifestyles, relationships, or material things and circumstances. These things fall away giving rise to a new set of forms and circumstances that are equal to the new frequency we're holding. We can participate in this process, but we are not in charge of it. It cannot be forced, nor is it linear. We do not, nor can we ever know all the factors at play, what karma we have set in motion in the distant past that we no longer remember and how it's playing out now. There are periods of lightness and expansiveness where we seem to float above our karma. And there are periods of density and darkness and despair as all of that stuff catches up with us again. And we must do the work of letting go and deep surrender. So I would say that one of the most important qualities as you travel on your own journey is patience and acceptance. There are a lot of things that you don't understand, right? That one doesn't understand about what's happening. Why is this happening to me? So instead of asking why, which of course, as I always say, is the least helpful question, it just we just accept that it is happening. We don't understand it. I don't understand why this is, but I accept it and I do my best with it. And I'm willing in the name of the highest good and in the name and in, to the glory of the infinite to traverse this period so that I can let go. That's patience and acceptance and deep surrender. During my first private audience with my teacher, I recounted my sudden left turn and sketched out for him the life that I'd walked away from to be available for whatever it was I was making myself available for and how irresistibly drawn I felt to France and their reconnection with my French family that had meant so much to me. He asked for my birth data, quickly did my numerology. He asked if I had a spiritual name, which I did, and which I'll tell you about another time. I had requested one from the numerologist at the Kundalini Research Institute as I began my first level of training in yoga as a way of marking the new stage of becoming a teacher. But I had never used my spiritual name like some people do, and I didn't feel much of a connection with it. Now, years later, I feel deeply connected to it. And I'm amazed, actually, I'm amazed at the wisdom that it embodies and how clearly it encapsulates my path as I look back. But at the time, it was just another adornment to get, like 
Rudraksha beads and white yoga clothes and a sheepskin and a turban. <laughs> These sort of accoutrements that people think of as going with Kundalini yoga, which I've, com- I've completely let go of. And as my teacher considered the numbers of my birth date and the spiritual name, he did some sketching and some, I don't know, <laughs> he's a deep numerologist, but I had no idea what he was doing. He said to me, matter of factly, you've come back here to heal your lineage. Your ancestors gave you this body and all of their aspirations and their unresolved karma is carried through in the DNA to you. As you set yourself free, you'll set them free as well and dissolve the karma of the lineage. Some of this karma is held in the land where you've anchored your spiritual bodies before through other incarnations and is calling you back now to solve this time what you couldn't solve before. Although I can't say I understood what he was talking about, I accepted it because it felt right. I couldn't have articulated it, but there was something that had the resonance of truth in it for me. I wondered if the nostalgia for the land was connected to that. He went on to say, with amusement, of my life as an actor, you've been living on the second level of life, not even down on the ground level. (laughs) Most people have the mask, but you put a mask on top of the mask. He laughed heartily and long, and I felt vaguely foolish, like I was a couple steps behind trying to catch up. No, no, he said compassionately. You learned a lot of important skills, too. It was a good preparation for you. Now drop it. (laughs) Drop the mask, all of them. He laughed heartily and long again. In five years, you will be zero, so don't worry. It won't be easy, though. Your mind is very clever. You fool everyone very well, but you fool yourself most of all. And he was off again in gales of laughter. So I'm like, okay. (laughs) It felt pretty clueless. My mind tried to grasp and hold on to something that I could understand in there. But the essence of what he was communicating, which was a vibration I could feel, just slipped away like an eel into the darker, deeper waters in me. Once again, he looked at me kindly. I'll give you a practice to help the process. You know the Shiva mantra, Om Triambakam Yajamahe, that one, to dissolve the ego. And then he showed me a posture to hold along with it. Okay, I said, for for how long? 31 minutes a day for 1,000 days, he laughed again. Maybe longer. (laughs) Was he serious? I felt strangely crestfallen as if I'd been told I needed remedial math tutoring to bring up my average instead of being praised for my good grades. But while a part of me wanted his approval and recognition, that was the old pattern, I was also aware that I would never fool this one. He saw me. He saw through me. And I loved him for it. Do you have any children? He asked. No, I answered. Why not? Could you not? No, I replied, and I felt myself wading into uneasy territory. I mean, I I could, I just, I just didn't, you know, it just never happened. The vacuum of his silence drew more words out of me. 
before I knew they were tumbling out. Well, my husband's older than me. He already had two grown kids. He didn't want any more. Um, I was married once before him, and I, I never felt the impulse at that time. And then we split up, so... And I fumbled around in the past, glossing over an abortion somewhere in the middle of it with a justification about bad timing. And the words that flew out on the air sounded hollow and far away, like excuses carried away by the wind. I felt vaguely ashamed and drifted off. I came back to his eyes fixed on me. So you didn't decide not to have children. You let life decide for you. I had no answer for that. But his eyes were kind. You can go back and make that choice a conscious one instead of an unconscious one. I leaned in. You have all your shakti, he said. When you make babies from your body, you use the shakti, the life force energy. 50% for the first baby, 25% for the second one. By the third one, the level of Shakti is down around the ankles. But you kept yours. Do you know why? I was baffled, but breathless. I had heaped layers of numbness over the termination of that pregnancy years before. The desperate grief that had swallowed me up in its wake, the hurt and perceived rejection of myself as a woman, and my own rejection of the gift the universe had offered me, remained a cold, mute spot deep inside my woman's heart. As the years went by, I slowly, unconsciously, withdrew from any real intimacy with myself or anyone else, further disempowering myself. So the idea that there was still some power, Shakti, in me stirred something in that cold heap of ashes. Do you know why? He repeated the question. No. Why? Why, why, would, I, why would I keep my Shakti? <laughs> it's not yours, he said. It belongs to God. It's given to you to create with, so if you didn't spend it to make children from your body, you must rededicate it to the divine another way. Back then, you didn't decide, but your soul knew something. He paused to see if I might be catching on, I guess, and referenced the paper where he had scribbled my numerology. You have the potential to be a powerful teacher, so maybe you conserved your shakti to be used for that. He waggled his eyebrows at me provocatively. Go back and decide. Make a choice to rededicate the Shakti to serve divinity. Well, even though I had no idea what he was even talking about, in that moment, I decided I would do it. I saw a ritual in my mind which could unwind the past and begin again more intentionally, more consciously, like a second chance. And I resolved in that moment that I would speak to my amazing group of female friends back at home. Suddenly I had the image of them all together and we were doing a ritual and it was like I just intuited that their Shakti, their powerful uh, female energy that they embodied as individuals and as a group was exactly the healing energy that was needed to go back into the past and, and plant a seed that would bear different fruit karmically in the future. Thus, I began to heal the imbalance in the second chakra. And I'm still working on clarifying things there. 
Yours is a second chakra problem, my teacher once said to me. That's where you get stuck. Just be you. <laughs> Feeling, flowing, intimacy, belonging, sexuality, and creativity. These are all the province of the second chakra. The vortex of energy that's located below your navel. And again, it's the water element. When you see depictions of the second chakra, it's associated with water. And the tears that seemed to flow constantly after I committed to the spiritual path were an expression of everything that was being stirred up in the second chakra and all the stuck energy there that blocked the full expression of life force through my whole being, but especially in the fifth chakra, the throat, the higher seat of creativity expressed as truth. Truth. When you speak your truth. And I was definitely not in the speaking of my truth yet. It also dimmed the trust in my intuition, sixth chakra, because the second chakra and the sixth chakra are reciprocal. Did I understand all of this at the time? No, of course not. Not at all. <laughs> Everything was muddiness and confusion. In fact, I had been told by a clairvoyant healer not long before all this, in the couple years leading up to my decision to do Kundalini Yoga teacher training, that my second chakra was a bit muddled. I don't see a physical disease process, she said, but it's murky in there. <laughs> At that time, I think I consulted her because I had some bizarre swelling of the belly that lasted a couple months and then just disappeared. So there was a lot going on down there that I didn't understand and I didn't know about. My first two years of Kundalini awakening training with my teacher, I remember as the awakening of feeling the water element and learning how to tell the difference between feeling as a process of letting go and wallowing. To feel, in the sense of which I speak, is not to wallow. Processing emotional energy is very different from juicing emotional energy through attachment to your story. The latter feeds the ego and strengthens it, whereas the former disappears it, dissolves it. You can't transcend what you're not willing to feel and let go of. We tend to avoid that like the plague, and it's understandable. The suppressed pain of so many lifetimes creates a tremendous pressure in the psyche. When it's triggered, we associate the pain with the trigger, as if something outside of ourselves were the cause of the pain. But that's not how it works. The something outside, whether it's a relationship issue, the loss of a loved one, your job, or a perceived failure in life of some kind, it's actually being called forth by that pain. It's called forth by the karma, by the patterns in the subconscious. And it's never the cause of the pain or the negative emotion. It is merely the trigger, right? It causes you to have to look at this thing. The pain lives in you already and is brought up to the surface by the life event. 
Grief is grief because when you experience it, it's not only the grief over whatever triggered it this time, it's the unprocessed grief of so many lifetimes that we want to run away from. All that stuff builds up and it feels like it's going to burst the dam. If I let it through, it'll just drown me, overwhelm me, and I won't be able to ever c come back up again. So every time we stuff something down, numb ourselves, act out, or project a negative emotion, we add more emotional energy to our stacks and stacks of emotional files and the pressure just increases. Our coping mechanisms are all about managing that pressure, but it doesn't mean that we ever actually process the energy. So I don't believe in coping mechanism. Sometimes we need a coping mechanism just to get through, but the most important thing is to be present to the energy that's coming through. In order to process it, you must allow yourself to feel it. Letting go or processing emotional energy is about identifying with the field itself rather than the content of the field. In other words, you are not the emotion that's arising. You are the space in which it is arising. Every time we connect an emotion to a story in our life and say, that's why I'm feeling this way, or we try to understand or analyze the emotion, think about it, we increase our identification with it. We see it as us and inseparable from our life situation and story. Spiritual evolution requires the willingness to disidentify from the emotion and all of the juice and the secret satisfaction that we get from wallowing in those feelings and being a victim in life and being a victim to those feelings and being a victim to our story. Spiritual evolution requires the willingness to disidentify from the stories, the beliefs, and the history that we've held so dear as me, my story, my life. Because the truth is we're enamored of all that stuff. It's the personalness, the specialness, the uniqueness of it that the ego clings to with sentimentality, juicing the emotional energy stirred up by our identification with it. It feeds off of that as a source of energy to perpetuate itself. When you process emotional energy, on the other hand, by merely holding space for it and refusing to personalize it, when you become the field instead of the content of the field, when you no longer resist the emotions and instead allow for their presence, it's okay that this is here, they diffuse into the field and disappear, poof. You can use the same practice with physical pain. So now that doesn't mean you're done with it. There's a lot more where that came from, but the process is always the same. So it's a willingness to let go of the person you always thought that you were in favor of something greater. And the problem is you don't know what that greater is. It's unknown and it's greatly feared by the ego. Because again, consciousness itself is evolving, not your personal self. The person doesn't become enlightened. <laughs> the person disappears little by little. And what's left is the light of the divine presence. 
It's us just getting out of the way of the truth of what we are already. When the clouds dissolve, the sun naturally shines forth. But you know how it is on those days where the clouds are leaden and low and heavy and it rains all day, you feel like you're never going to see the sun again. (laughs) My teacher said to me after we'd known each other some time and were working together on a manual for the school, when you first came here, I remember you cried all the time. I never saw anyone cry as much as you did. Your water was putting out your fire. But it was your soul that was crying. You were crying to be free. As he spoke those words, I remembered those early years with a new compassion. I didn't want to admit to myself or anyone else that I was feeling increasingly lost and very, very sad. I didn't know at the time that this was good news. From the higher perspective, I had already forgotten what I had learned in that powerful moment of grace when I met my teacher, that in spite of our unconsciousness and forgetting, we are lovingly, tenderly held. If you're going through something right now that feels like this, take heart. You are not alone. No one is alone, as the old Sondheim song goes. In fact, that's how I'll leave you today, with a link in the show notes to that old, true song. Have a listen, be the space, and let yourself feel the grace. Thank you for joining me in the grace space, where you're always in the right place. If you love this podcast, I invite you to subscribe to it and submit a review if you feel called to do so. Also, be sure to sign up for my newsletter right here. I look forward to spending this time with you again next week. Meanwhile, I send you love and blessings. Bye for now.